Well, brethren, one of the most important elements of our calling and our work as a church is the gospel. Early in his ministry, Jesus emphasized how important the gospel was to us and to his church. Please turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll look at a very familiar scripture to start. How important is the topic of the gospel? How important was it to Jesus Christ? How important should it be to us? Well, we begin here in Mark chapter 1 to set the foundation for the message today. This is at the beginning of Christ's ministry, and we see where his focus is and what he was talking about. Mark 1, verse 14, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So we learn what the gospel Jesus preached was. It was the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's very plain and clear. We can see from many other scriptures in the gospels that this was the message Jesus taught. Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God. But we should also note that he tied that message with other concepts. Here he ties it to repentance. Repentance and believing the gospel are connected together. They're both essential part of essential parts of the salvation process. You must repent, you must change, and you must believe the gospel. It's something you must intellectually accept, believe, and it must become a con conviction. So we see here how important the gospel is to everything. It was the core of Jesus's work. It must be the core of our message and work as a church, and it must be part of our lives because it says we must believe it. We must believe it and we must teach it properly so other people can believe it. So it's vital that we properly understand the gospel. But with that as our foundation, I want to transition to the main issue we're going to discuss today. What about the fact that there are other ways the gospel is described in the New Testament? All it takes is a simple concordant search of the word gospel on Bible Gateway to find that not every time the gospel is used in the New Testament does it say the gospel of the kingdom of God. There are a variety of ways the gospel is expressed in the scriptures. We'll look at a few up here. We're going to have a bit of a PowerPoint. Oh, we're going to go back. Okay, I've shown you a f uh, the main ones, how the gospel is expressed in the New Testament, and it's not always kingdom of God. We read about the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of his son, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the glory of Christ the gospel of peace, the gospel of God, the gospel of the blessed God or the blessed God, and the gospel of your salvation. Now, you'll probably notice that the majority of those alternative wordings, descriptions of the gospel, came from Paul's writings. And this has led some to conclude in the world of theology that Paul preached a different gospel than Jesus Christ and, the, and even the other disciples. The idea is often part of a bigger theological idea called Pauline theology or Pauline Christianity, and that's the idea that Paul's teachings were distinct from those of Jesus, that, that he took the teachings of Jesus but really built a different religion on them, and that modern Christianity is essentially built on the teachings of Paul, not the teachings of Jesus, because there is a distinction there, according to some people. Part of this idea is that Paul preached a distinct gospel from Jesus. Or sometimes it's more softly expressed that Paul preached it with a different emphasis. Well, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, but then Paul taught it from these perspectives, and it's a different gospel. It's a different emphasis. 
Jesus taught about the kingdom. Paul taught about grace, faith, and the person of Jesus. Well, brethren, is that true? Is that true? Did Paul teach a different gospel? Because we know the gospel is a very important issue. We've already established that from Mark chapter 1. Well, we're going to look at that question today. And in today's message, we're going to explore three questions that come from that main issue. Number one, did Paul introduce, did he claim to introduce a new distinct gospel that was different than the one Jesus taught? Did he? Number two, if not, how should we understand the various titles for the gospel that Paul uses that seem a little different from what Christ talked about? Are they distinct from the kingdom of God or do they somehow represent the same message? And number three, what implication does the answer to those two questions have on our work of preaching the gospel today? So if you like a title, our title today is The Gospel, One, Two, or Many. Is it just one gospel? Is it two gospels? Or is it many gospels? So let's begin by dealing with the first question. Did Jesus and Paul teach two different gospels? Is there a Christ gospel and a Pauline gospel? Well, let's begin by reading another familiar scripture about the the gospel Jesus taught. Just to set the foundation for the answer, we'll look at a very familiar scripture, Matthew 24, verse 14, in the Olivet Prophecy. You probably don't need to turn there. Many of you know what it says. But it's interesting that Christ identified the gospel his church would preach way beyond the Apostle Paul. And what did he call it? in all of that prophecy. Well, Matthew 24, verse 14. In the end times, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So it seems from at least Jesus's expectation that beyond Paul into the end times, into the time before his return, the gospel of the kingdom would be being preached. So does it make sense to think that somehow in the middle that Paul changed that gospel and it became something else? Jesus clearly had an expectation that the church would be preaching the same gospel he preached in the end time, and that's very significant. Christ indicated it would be the same gospel. But now let's turn our attention to Paul. Did Paul claim to have brought a distinct message, a unique gospel, different from Christ's? Well, let's look at Galatians chapter 1, because he actually answers that question pretty directly. Galatians chapter 1. Did Paul claim to bring a distinct gospel? Or we could say, did Paul claim to bring a different gospel? Galatians chapter 1, and let's look at this very strongly worded warning he gives here, beginning in verse 6. Galatians 1 and verse 6. We'll see what Paul would have thought about the idea that he taught a different gospel, a unique Pauline gospel. Look at these, listen to these words. He says, verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So Paul had a different gospel in mind, but it wasn't one that he was preaching. It was something he saw developing outside of his influence. Verse 7, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. It's easy to read over that in verse 7, where he says, which is not another. He's saying there's not a gospel that can just be another gospel, like gospel part B or gospel part C. There's not another gospel. You can't have another gospel. He's, you know, he said there is one gospel, and any other gospel is not just another addition to that. There is only one gospel. There's not another. 
So he rejected the idea that there could be any other legitimate gospel. He said any other gospel is a perversion of the gospel of Christ, the, gospel, the possessive there, the gospel that Christ preached. Verse 8, but even if we, and then look at that, Paul includes himself in that. So here he's, he's almost tackling this idea of Pauline theology. Even if we, including myself, Paul, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you that then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, as so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He uses that word anathema again, a very strong word. So Paul uses very, very strong language to his audience to say, there is no other gospel, and if anyone's preaching anything else, that person is accursed, that person is anathema. But how do we know for sure that the gospel he's talking about here was the same gospel that Jesus preached? Because some could say, well, no, well, Paul's talking about, again, his gospel because it had changed. Well, all we have to do is skip down to verse 11, and he addresses where was the source of the gospel he preached. Did he, did he devise it in his own mind according to his own theological background? Well, no, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Man would include Paul. If Paul devised his own gospel, it would be according to man. He said it's not according to man, including himself. Verse 12, for neither I neither received it from man nor was I taught it from men, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the same being who preached the gospel of the kingdom throughout the gospels, who said the gospel would be preached in the end time, was the person who taught the gospel to Paul. He, he learned the gospel from Jesus Christ, and he was pretty clear about that. So the gospel he preached wasn't from man, it was from Jesus Christ. So even before we get into the different wordings he used for the gospel, we can establish from these scriptures that he clearly taught that the same gospel Jesus preached was the gospel he was preaching because he learned it directly from Christ. And if we believe what it says, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, would Christ be teaching a unique, different gospel to Paul than he taught to the original disciples and apostles? Obviously, that wouldn't make sense. And let's, let's go to Acts 28, verses 30, just to solidify this point, that even though we don't always see the wording of the kingdom of God, in Paul's writings. That is clearly the message he taught. Acts 28 verses 30 through 31 will trace his life to one of the latest statements we have about what he was doing, what his activities were, and what was, what was he preaching. Was it some unique Pauline message? Acts 28 verse 30, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. And what was he doing? Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So clearly there is no discrepancy. The gospel Jesus preached was the same gospel that Paul preached into, to the end of his life. It's very important. But of course, we know that Paul also preached about Jesus Christ. Obviously, you have to preach about the identity, the example, the significance and the death and resurrection of the Messiah, what his role is now, his second coming. That's all tied together into it. That's obviously something Paul preached as well and the other apostles. But that didn't mean that they stopped preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So I think we've pretty well answered the first question. Did Paul claim to teach a different, unique Pauline gospel? Obviously not. He preached the same gospel Jesus preached. 
But now let's move on more directly to this question. We still have these different references to the gospel that Paul makes, and he doesn't always call it the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom of God. So what do we do with these references? Does it mean that these various descriptions of the gospel are somehow different? You know, right here you see the, the equal sign with a slash through it. That means not equal. So is the, the gospel of the grace of God not equal to the gospel of the kingdom of God and all these others? Are they separate, unique, distinct, fundamentally different gospels from the gospel of Jesus Christ just because they are named something else? Well, before we directly answer that question, and you're probably already formulating the answer and already understand this, this is a review, let me use an analogy that I think will help make the answer more understandable. This helped me a bit. So how could all these possible different names be describing the same thing? Is that possible? Can different concepts describe the same thing? Well, let me give you these words. We have rough rider. We have husband and father. We have president. We have writer and author, conservationist, hunter and sportsman, and trust buster. All of those things are distinct, very different things. Anyone have an idea what those things have in common? They all describe the same man. All these descriptors describe the same human being. They're all aspects or facets of Theodore Roosevelt, one of our presidents of the United States. Yes, they're completely different. They're different professions, they're different titles, they're different skills, they're different interests, but they're all facets of the same human being. And you can't understand Theodore Roosevelt unless you understand each of them. And as you study each of them, what do you come away understanding? Theodore Roosevelt. They are all different components, facets, aspects of one human being, one man, Theodore Roosevelt. And if you study him, you're obviously going to study all of them. But you could call him, it could be the, the story of the president, the story of the rough rider, the story of the trust buster. They all describe the same person. So hopefully that sets the foundation for how can we have these different titles for the gospel of the kingdom of God. Hopefully that helps us understand that you can have different components, different elements of the same thing, but they all are descriptors, descriptors of the same gospel. So we have the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of his son, the gospel of Christ, and they are all components of the same message, the same good news. They're all facets of the same gospel. So just as TR was a man of many facets, the gospel of the kingdom is a message, a good news that includes many facets, many components that are a part of it. And when we examine each of them individually, we see that each of those individual descriptors that mostly Paul used are all essential components of understanding the kingdom of God. You can't understand the kingdom of God without any of these facets, and you can't understand any of these facets without coming to the kingdom of God. So let's demonstrate this by doing what I call the so that test. We can basically take each of these, and we won't take each one of them, but we'll take the majority of them. We can take each of these titles, descriptors for the gospel, and we can basically use the so that test, and I submit to you that all of them take you to the kingdom of God. The gospel of the grace of God. Well, the good news about God's grace. Well, 
We have grace so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have the death penalty removed. That's good news. Grace is the only way that can happen. But you have the death penalty removed so that we can have a relationship with God and grow in his character. But what's the ultimate purpose of having a relationship with God, that clean slate, and grow in his character? Well, obviously, you can't receive the gift of salvation and inherit eternal life without of it, without it. So grace leads you to the kingdom of God. By grace, we have been saved. That's the whole purpose of grace, leading us to salvation. So grace leads to, it's an important facet that leads us to the kingdom of God. You can't be in the kingdom of God without God extending his grace to us. You know, and that begins with the calling of God, which is one of the, the acts of his grace. So we could write down in our notes connected with this, Hebrews 12, verse 28, where the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So the author of Hebrews there connects those two things. You can't disconnect them. If we're receiving a kingdom, therefore we must have grace. Well, let's look at another one. What about the gospel of Christ? Well, is Christ an essential element of the gospel of the kingdom of God? Well, obviously. We can't be in the kingdom of God unless we have a savior who makes forgiveness of sin possible through his death. So that, as a result, we can imitate his life and grow in character. But what's the ultimate purpose of that? So that we can receive eternal life at his return and in the kingdom of God serve under him, the king of kings, because Christ is the king of the kingdom of God. And we also understand it's his message. So can you understand the kingdom of God without understanding the savior and king of that kingdom? Well, obviously those two things are tied together. If you just talk about the kingdom and don't talk about the king, you, you have a big hole in the message. So obviously those things are tied inter intimately together. Well, let's look at this, the gospel of peace. That one should be very simple. When we talk about the kingdom, what's one of the first words that come to mind? Well, the gospel of peace, the good news of peace. Well, first of all, on the human level, we can be at peace or reconciled to God the Father and the people of God as part of God's calling. We can be reconciled to God, which basically means to be at peace with God, to have the enmity of sin and the death penalty removed, which brings us at peace with God, so that we can build righteous character and endure to the end. But what's the, what's, we can develop a, this harmonious relationship with our creator, but then what's the purpose? so we can enter the kingdom of God and serve Christ in bringing peace and reconciliation to the rest of the world. So Christ is working to bring peace between himself and us today, between us and the people of God, so that we can be at peace with him forever in the kingdom of God and bring peace to the world. So how can you disconnect the concept of peace from the message of the kingdom of God? They're intimately tied together. You can tie in Isaiah 9 verse 7, of course, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So another descriptor of the gospel is peace. The gospel is characterized by peace. So it's a very appropriate synonym we could say for the gospel. That's the good news of peace on many levels. Well, let's look at this next one, the gospel of your salvation. Is that somehow a different gospel? Well, salvation, what's the purpose of that? so that we can no longer be slaves of sin and can be released or saved from the death penalty. That's the, the beginning step of salvation. We can be saved from the penalty of our past sins at baptism. 
so that we can build righteous character and endure to the end. But what's the ultimate, the ultimate goal? So that we can receive salvation, eternal life in the kingdom of God, and then assist God and Christ in bringing salvation to the rest of humanity. Salvation is synonymous with the kingdom of God, so obviously that would just be another way of expressing the same message. Uh, you can tie in Revelation 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. So salvation and the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom of God, again, are intimately tied together. And it's just another way of expressing the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what about the gospel of the kingdom of God? The interesting thing about this is you really can't do the so that test on this one because the kingdom of God is the culmination of where God's plan is leading. It, it is the whole purpose of everything. So there really is no so that after the kingdom of God, we see then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 24 through 25. There's no so that beyond the kingdom of God. All these other aspects lead us to the kingdom of God, but the ultimate destination, the goal, the ultimate terminus of the message, the totality of the message is the kingdom of God. There's no so that beyond that as far as what God has revealed to us. The kingdom of God is the culmination of the, the message, the gospel, the good news, the plan. It's all leading to the kingdom of God. So brethren, Paul did not preach a different gospel than Jesus Christ. That should be very clear. He preached the same message. He preached the good news, the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, but at different times and in different circumstances, emphasized different facets of it. But those facets, again, just to repeat, are not separate gospels. They're all connected to the greater umbrella of the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Just as you cannot understand the kingdom without understanding these facets, again, you can't understand each of these facets without understanding the kingdom. You can't be in the kingdom without God's grace. You can't have a kingdom without a king. You can't have peace in the kingdom without the good news of peace, because peace is what the kingdom of God is going to bring. We can't be in the kingdom unless we're saved from the death penalty, salvation. And we can't have a kingdom without God himself. We also saw the, go the gospel of God. Well, God is the end. You know, when God is all in all, that's the whole, the whole total finality of the kingdom of God. When God is all in all, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's, it's quite an amazing thing. Just to hammer home this point, let's, let's spend a couple of minutes in 1 Corinthians 15. It's such an amazing chapter. And as, as I was going through this, 1 Corinthians 15, we appropriately so often call it the resurrection chapter. But after focusing on it a little bit, I'm not even sure if that's the best word for it. I wonder if it would really more appropriately be called the gospel chapter, because really that's what it's about, not just the resurrection. He, he concludes with talking the resurrection, but look at where he begins in, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. He says, I declare to you brethren, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So he introduces this chapter by saying, I'm going to explain the gospel that I preach to you. So the rest of this chapter is the gospel that Paul preached. 
And what does he talk about then as he continues on? Well, we're not going to read the whole thing, but where does he start? Well, he starts where you have to start, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Obviously, you have to start there unless you establish that there is a Messiah and that he died so that this plan is possible moving forward, you know, you don't, you don't have a message to preach about. You don't have a kingdom of God without that starting point. Verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose the third day according to the scripture and that he was seen and all those things happened. So he says you, you begin with, with that, but then that leads somewhere else. That's where the Protestants go off. Sometimes they talk, they talk a lot about Jesus but they don't take it to where, what was the whole purpose of everything Jesus did? Obviously the kingdom of God, but they often don't talk about that. They all, they just, they leave it, they leave it at Jesus. You can't leave it at Jesus. You have to move forward. What was the whole purpose of everything he came for and did? Well, let's look at verse 22. What does he begin talking about later in the chapter? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So he talks about the resurrection. He talks about the resurrection. And then what does he come to after that? Verse 24, then comes the end. We already read this, but look at it in context. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. Verse 25, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I mean, if that's not the gospel of the kingdom of God, what is? I mean, Paul said, this is the gospel I preached, and he culminates with this message, this powerful language about the kingdom of God and the, the fulfillment of the scriptures about the kingdom of God. Let's look at verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I mean, that's the totality of the, the gospel of the kingdom of God, when God the Father comes down and dwells with man. And then after that, we really don't know much. They're together for all eternity, and what do they do next? That's, that's the great mystery. We wish we knew more about what comes after that. But it's very clear that Paul introduces this chapter as this is the gospel I preach. He begins by talking about Christ as the Messiah, but then he culminates with this powerful message about the kingdom of God and covers many of the other facets of the kingdom of God in that chapter. It's quite an amazing chapter and definitely worth study on that chapter as we are approaching the fall holy days. So I think we've established that. I think we've established that all these different wordings for the gospel represent essentially the same message. But now that leads us to the third and final part of today's message. What implication does this have on our work today? Is it just, have we just kind of taken a difficult misunderstood topic and explained it? Well, there is an implication for our message today. We know that there is only one gospel, that is the gospel of the kingdom of God and it has many facets. But what's the implication for the work that the church has to do? Well, let's turn to Galatians 2, verse 7. Galatians 2, verse 7.
What is the implication of all this to the work of preaching the gospel to the world? Paul makes an interesting point here in Galatians 2 verse 7 about how the work of God was organized in the first century. And we'll see something that he says here that could also be misinterpreted to support this idea of, well, there's a different Pauline gospel. Galatians 2 verse 7. He says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. Verse 8, for he who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively to, in me toward the Gentiles. Now, first of all, just as a little side point, sometimes modern scholars will try to create this tension between Peter as if they kind of operated completely independently, separate of each other. You know, Peter, very much more Jewish, Paul very much more Gentile, and then Paul's version of Christianity becomes the Christianity we know around the world today. But the, first of all, this section of Scripture is very clear. They work together, and Paul didn't see any tension or division between his work and Peter's work. But he does use this interesting language that Peter was commissioned to take the gospel to the uncircumcised, so he says the gospel to the uncircumcised for the uncircumcised, and Paul the gospel for the circumcised. So this adds another interesting dimension, I believe, to this whole topic. We have two distinct missions here, but are they two distinct gospels? Peter was responsible for the gospel to the circumcised. That's talking about the Jewish community. Paul to the uncircumcised, the Gentile world. Well, first of all, it's interesting that he uses the definite article before gospel. He says, the gospel for the circumcised. By using the definite article, he's not saying there are two gospels, the gospel for them, the gospel for us, and the gospel for them. He's talking about two different audiences. The same gospel, one person is taking it to one audience, another person, Paul, is taking it to the other audience. Paul clearly is saying there's one gospel, one true gospel, Paul's supposed to take it to the Gentiles, Peter takes it to the Jews. Well, what does that mean? The distinction is the audience, obviously. One gospel, two audiences. But why would you have a distinction between that? Why would one man be commissioned to take it to one group and the other to the other group? Well, because the answer is the gospel couldn't be presented in the exact same way to both audiences. Because the Jewish world and the Gentile world at that time were coming at the religion from two completely different backgrounds and perspectives. And you had to have a different approach and a different, really, a starting point to address each group. The needs of each group, the emphasis, what you emphasized at the beginning of the message weren't the same. Let's just compare them. The Jews had a basic understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. The, gospel, the, the apostles didn't have to go back and prove the scriptures. The Gentiles had no background in the Hebrew scriptures. So obviously you're going to have a distinction in how you're going to address them because one accepts the Hebrew scriptures has authority, the other has basically no knowledge of it. The Jews had an idea of one true God who was a perfect being. They had that concept. They grew up with that concept. The Gentiles mainly looked to many gods who in many cases were cruel and apathetic towards people. They were not nice beings. So how you present God to the Jews and to the, to the Gentiles is a little different. You have to start at a different place with the Gentiles. You have to introduce this idea of one God who's a loving God to the Gentiles, where to the Jews, you don't really have to establish that as much. 
Jews, they grasped the concept of an invisible God that they couldn't see. You didn't didn't have to convince them of the existence of an invisible God, but the Gentiles came out of a world where their gods were made out of matter. They were idols that they could see and touch and interact with. So you have to get past that. The Jews had a basic view of morality through the lens of the Ten Commandments. They understood the basic principles that lead to a moral person. The Gentiles had a very limited view of morality. Morality wasn't always really even a part of the the Greco-Roman religion. The Jews sought after a God and they were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah that came showing signs. The Gentiles wanted a God and religion based on wisdom and logic. Paul brings this out at one point. The Gentiles want wisdom and logic. The, the Jews want a sign. So again, we could go on and on, but the, the point is that you had two completely different audiences with two completely different needs, so the gospel had to be presented to them in distinct ways, and Paul was uniquely trained to do that. Now, we're not going to go through this whole section, but an interesting, and I would encourage you to study this on your own, an interesting study in the two different approaches between the, the apostle to the the Jews, the circumcised, and the the apostle to the Gentiles, is looking at Peter's message in Acts 2 and 3. Of course, the the message he gave on the day of Pentecost, and then the message he gave um, in the next chapter. And you'll see that those messages are very grounded in Old Testament scriptures, using Old Testament personalities, using wording and verbiage that would be very familiar to a Jewish audience that would probably go right over the head and mean nothing to a Gentile audience. But then when you go to Acts 17, 22 through 34, where Paul addresses the Athenians at Mars Hill, you see he uses a completely different approach to preach to them. You know, he begins at a very different place. I mean, he begins by trying to convince them of the idea of an invisible God. You know, the, the, the unknown God, that's the one I'm talking about. So he begins at a very different starting place that Peter, when he's addressing a Jewish audience on the day of Pentecost, doesn't have to begin with that. He doesn't have to establish that fact. But Paul's background gave him a very unique ability because he had a background in logic and rhetoric, and he could meet the Gentile world where they were and present the gospel in a way that was meaningful to them. Again, the two audiences were so different in background knowledge and overall religious worldview that the gospel had to be presented in a different way to them. With the Jews, the apostles had to start by proving that Jesus was the prophesied Christ and Messiah. With the Gentiles, the apostles had to start by establishing that there is one God and that that God is the God of Israel. And you can't really preach that Christ is the Messiah or announce the coming kingdom of God until you build that foundation that, yes, there is one God and it's the God of Israel and that's the God you should be listening to. So let's bring this today to today. Obviously, we don't have an apostle to the circumcision and an apostle to the Gentiles today. But does the same basic principle guide our work as we preach the gospel today? Well, we rarely preach the gospel by going into a public venue these days and standing up and preaching to a group of people. There aren't many very, there aren't very many opportunities to do that, like Paul and Peter would often have. But if that did happen, would how we present the gospel vary depending on who the audience was? If we just had an audience of random, well, let's just say we brought different audiences in here. What if we brought an audiences of Hindus and Buddhists into this room and we started preaching the gospel. 
well, would we preach it the same way as we preach it to everyone else? No, we would have to begin by establishing, again, like the Gentiles, we have to begin by establishing there is one true God, there are not many, and that the Bible is his word. You would have to begin there before you can go anywhere else with that audience. If you had a group of Orthodox Jews, you know, you don't have to try to establish the idea of one God or an invisible God, but you're going to have to establish the fact that the, that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One has come, and that he was Jesus Christ, and that he will come again. So you would, you would address that audience with a different starting point, a different facet of the message. If you had a group of Protestants in this room, you wouldn't have to convince them that Christ is the Messiah. They pretty much believe that, but you would have to address many misconceptions they have about Christ, and you would have to emphasize his return because, the, because that's not always emphasized in the Protestant world. Well, what if you had a group of Catholics in this room? Well, you wouldn't necessarily, like the Protestants, you wouldn't have to prove that Jesus is the Christ, but there would be other misconceptions you would have to deal with with that group. And you'd have to begin by starting on establishing the authority of the 66 books of the Bible because the Catholics accept the Apocrypha and also divine tradition handed down by the popes over the years. So you would have to address that really before you can move on much further. So again, the point is, depending on the nature of the audience, the gospel is going to be presented differently. Different facets, different starting points are going to be emphasized depending on who the audience is. And we practice this principle on Life, Hope, and Truth and in Discern Magazine in a way. You know, we try to write content that reaches people from various different backgrounds, various different interests. So here is just some of the blogs. I'm, I'm responsible for the blog section. Here are just some of the blogs that we've posted over the last few months. And you'll see we try to cover topics and concerns from a variety of different perspectives that are of interest to different people. You write on different topics. So some people are searching for answers on how to have a better life, and that's really their perspective they're coming from. They're not as inf interested as religion. Well, we have articles like, well, how do you avoid an emotional affair? How, how do you overcome offenses between people? Because that, that is of a concern and interest to a certain group of people, and they need that. And then there are other people who are trying to make sense of the world around them. I mean, we hear a lot about AI. So we talked about, will AI destroy humanity? That's a question many people are asking. So there's an audience of people who are just trying to really understand the news and the world around them. And we have to serve that audience. So we emphasize a facet of the message for that audience. But then we have also a religious audience who have questions about the Bible and are looking for answers. So we also produce content that directly answers people's Bible questions. Now, there are a lot of people that is baptism necessary for salvation is not a question they have, but there are people who do have that question, and we have to serve all those people. So we're doing essentially the same thing that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were doing. We're presenting the same message, the one unified gospel, to various audiences, but that requires emphasizing different facets and starting points. Uh, depending on who they are and where they're coming from. But ultimately, everything we, we publish, everything we put out, ultimately leads to the kingdom of God. I mean, you can do the so that test on essentially every topic we would cover, and it will ultimately, in one way or another, lead you to the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is what we're trying to do. So in conclusion, brethren, let's revisit the three basic questions we set out to answer and explore this 
afternoon as we close. Was Jesus's gospel of the kingdom different from the gospel that Paul preached? Well, the answer is absolutely not. They both preached the same gospel. Jesus preached the kingdom of God, and so did Paul, Peter, and the rest of the apostles. Just at different times, different facets or elements of it were emphasized. How should we understand the various descriptors that Paul used of the gospel? Well, we understand that they're all titles, they're all descriptors of the same basic message. When we analyze each one of them, they all lead to the kingdom of God. We can't preach the kingdom of God without those facets, and we can't understand those facets without the kingdom of God. And what implication does this have on our work of preaching the gospel today? Well, we're commissioned to preach the gospel to the world, and we must proclaim it in its fullest. We must proclaim all the facets of the gospel message. That means we have to consider the various audiences of people out there and present the gospel in ways that will hopefully if God is working with them, interest them and lead them along and reach them. We must provide multiple entry points for the gospel messages through articles, blogs, magazines, booklets, podcasts, video programs, and meet our diverse audience where they are. And the church has always done this throughout our history. But again, all those entry points and all those facets ultimately lead to the core same fundamental message. So brethren, let's move forward in our collective work to preach the one true everlasting gospel to this world, and that is the gospel of the kingdom of God.